Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Welcome to this penultimate episode of our rural health series. Today we're going to talk with three people who work in rural health departments in Iowa. Our first guest today is Becky Venami. I've been the chair of the Carroll County Board of Health for several years. I think overall I've been on the board probably about 15 years. Um, and my background is, is pretty unique in that I, I started off in life as a sports writer um, and somehow ended up changing over to public relations, um, working at a medical school in Wichita, Kansas, and then um, ventured over to the Department of Preventive Medicine and Public Health and started focusing more on research, grant writing. Um, and a lot of the projects that I worked on during that time period were specifically on public health leadership and development. And then um, as I was finishing up a master's degree in that time in Wichita, I came back home to Iowa, met my husband, um, moved to Western Iowa, um, and, and really tried to, to focus more on, on healthcare, um, from, not from public health workforce and leadership, but more fundraising development, public relations for rural healthcare. Becky's background combined with her tenure on the Board of Health is really interesting. She shares her thoughts on rural health. Even though I think people have have stepped up, they've come together to try to um, enhance the economic viability of the small towns, you still have that rural culture that is very difficult to overcome with the preventive messaging. Um, It's gotten much better with with how, um, just for example, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, There are more women getting mammograms in rural Iowa due to that month. Um, than there definitely were in the 70s or 80s. Um, You know, the message of prevention is getting out there in terms of those once a year exams. I'm seeing it more with uh, colon cancer awareness too. Um, People that never before would have thought to go in to get a colonoscopy. That message is now really getting into rural Iowa. But overall other preventive messages with the healthy lifestyles, You know, being more active, we are seeing more and more communities that are expanding trail systems, um, trying to have some outdoor workout stations, really working towards having expanded rec centers. And again, that's taking the health messaging there, understanding that the more active you are, the, the more chance or the better your chances of preventing different types of illnesses down the road. But we still have work to do. Um, we still have a very proud hardworking population that has grown up with the mentality that unless I'm dying, I'm not going to the doctor. So we have to, there's still work to do in in rural Iowa to overcome that type of um, perception that you're seen as weak if if you go in for for your tune-up or your preventive exams. Becky talks about how public health is set up in her county. 
Our county is pretty unique in our public health infrastructure. Um, many years ago, before I was on Board of Health, um, the, the public health nursing component was privatized. So it was pulled out from the county structure and it's subcontracted to a local hospital. So they hire the public health nurse and, and oversee the day-to-day -day activities. And then we have environmental health and our home care aides um, is still underneath the county structure, all report to the Board of Health. Um, and then we also have a, a community action agency, um, New Opportunities in Carroll, and they have the WIC program, um, they have iSmile. So they have some public health uh, components of their agency as well. And they're regularly reporting to the Board of Health as well. Um, so with that, that you have, you know, what could easily be a little bit of a siloed system. Um, but I felt like the, the communication and collaboration has been excellent um, with all agencies. But to me, I, I really think the, the shift, what, you know, brought that collaboration up a notch in the last 15 years was, was the shift with, um, with the, the ACA when that was passed and when the rural hospital, or when all hospitals um, had to start performing a community health needs assessment as well inside their organization and needed to start tracking their community benefits and showing um, what community benefit they are providing um, and, and to verify that it's actually meeting an identified need. I felt like that really kicked our, just our regular every five years China hip up a notch um, because the hospitals became more engaged. And I think in the past, um, maybe I don't want to say there was a resistance because there wasn't a resistance for hospitals and public health departments to work together, but I think there was perhaps maybe a lack of understanding how they could help each other out. And I see that kind of broken down a little bit more in the last 15 years for sure, um, because I think there's more of an understanding how you need to <clears throat> utilize the data to the best of, of your ability and work together because you have the same issues. Um, most hospitals are, are going to show that uh, their community um, needs more cancer education or prevention. Well, that's gonna fall right in line with what IDPH, um, with what local public health departments are, are wanting to accomplish on their China hip as well. I really think it's, it's broken down a few of those um, maybe invisible barriers. You know, I, I don't want to say that there was ever, you know, an inability to work together because I never saw that either. Um, I, I think there just was a lack of understanding of public health. Um, I think people hear that word and, and a lot of times don't understand that really it just boils down to prevention. Um, and we're all on the same page, all hospitals out there they don't want patients to come in with a stage three cancer diagnosis. They do not want that at all. So I think, um, you know, understanding when, when hospitals needed to do their own health survey and they really had to start bringing in more staff and, and I think people became more educated on, well, why are we putting this survey out and what do we have to do with this? And, oh, okay, well, yeah, that would make sense that we should be working with public health department because they're doing something big during the month of October anyways. You know, so, so I think that that has been very beneficial, especially in rural areas where sometimes that research component, it, it's not that it's overlooked, 
there's just so much on these staff's plate already. Um, you have so many people that are doing multiple roles and to try to really have that, you know, research component in there too is difficult. And if you can work together, which I think they're finding, um, you know, that, that public health is just a little more versed in that area with the statistics and the reporting um, back to agencies. And so I think it's been a win-win. We recorded this interview in the fall of 2020. Becky talks about the impact of the pandemic on public health and healthcare. Gosh, our our public health staff and, and our local hospital workers are so stressed out right now. Um, the more support that we can give to them, the more that we can try to collaborate and, and take off of their plate. It is just mandatory right now that we do that because this we're still several months away from having any sort of time to breathe. So um, I am seeing that locally. Our, our local um, preparedness coalition, just outside of, of our mega coalition, we're really trying to work together. We're trying to find better solutions with contact tracing. Um, anything that I, I've even gone in and gotten trained um, and, and I've been making phone calls just because we wanna stay on top of it and we do not want our public health staff working 12 hours a day, every day. We, we, we need them to uh, be able to, to breathe a little bit. You take the pandemic away and September and October are always stressful times for all local public health departments across the state. And this year, those flu clinics were probably doubled, which was good that the community is getting the message that if you haven't had a flu shot before, please, please, please get a flu shot this year. Just try it out this year. Try to save yourself <laughs> from complications that that we can avoid. So they have just been overwhelmed with flu clinics, and that's not even taking the worst worldwide pandemic that we've had for over a hundred years. So put that on top of their plate, um, and and they still have school immunization audits that are are coming up and take a big time. So. So we really have to do everything that we can to support our frontline public health workers right now because they have taken on um, a ton of stress and they have many more months ahead that they have to deal with this. And that again, in the state of Iowa, funding has not been good. Nationally funding has not been good, but in the state of Iowa, there have been so many significant cuts to healthcare and, and this is what we're left with now. Basically our county of 20,000, um, when it comes to public health nursing, we have about 1.25 FTE. That's without a pandemic. So it's, it's tough. Becky talks about how the Board of Health has made decisions and supported public health during the pandemic and before, and what some of the challenges are in her county. I would say that those agencies are probably driving um, how we're making our decisions more so than even the board setting the direction. Um, because we go based off of the, the China hip, you know, what we identify through the data that the survey needs, but, or that the community needs, but we have had instances in the past. Um, you know, we, we know just from our gut feeling, and I try not to ever have, um, you know, I, I say all the time, correlation is not causation. So yes, just because we think this is a big need, we're not going to go off into that direction until we see the data that supports that this is a big need. 
But we had a staff member several years ago that, you know, we had discussed how how can people in, in wheelchairs, are they able to even maneuver and exercise? Are our streets even safe enough? Are they handicap accessible? Um, so she had a program, uh, you know, we supported her applying for a grant for a walkability study. And some great things came out of that and really identified areas where the city could improve the accessibility um, for residents. So, so I think there's probably, you know, things like that um, that we're constantly taking into consideration. And again, with our, we don't have um, a lack of access. We're lucky in our county that we're not a, a health professional shortage area for primary care. Um, we are for behavioral health, but the whole entire state is, so we're not unique there. Um, we do have a good network of specialists that are able to, to make it into our communities. Not as often, obviously, as we'd like to see, but we pretty much have all the specialties covered um, that are coming into our local hospitals. So we don't um, have a lot of access issues from that regard, um, but we do have socioeconomic issues. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, health disparities based upon race, um, but we do, when you look at uh, our rural nature, what I had kind of talked about before with trying to break through a little bit of that <clears throat> stubborn mentality of I'm not going in, unless I'm dying um, type of attitude, I would say that is really at the forefront too of a lot of the decisions that we make from a board of health perspective because we know that, yes, this is a great idea, but are we gonna be successful? How are we going to try to tweak those messages to really have an impact to affect change? And I, and I think that's probably what the majority of people in all boards all across the state and the nation really struggle with is, is how do you flip that switch to really um, not just get the message out, but to affect the change from the message. I asked Becky what she wishes people understood about public health. I think a lot of people with public health right now, they're only equating it to wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And so they equate that with government stepping in where it shouldn't step. And that is frustrating because if they understood the role of public health, they would understand that without public health in our country 150 years ago, we would be a third world country because the government stepped in and researchers and practitioners stepped in at a critical time in our country where the industrialization was occurring. It was overcrowding. Um, sanitation was horrible. There was no control over the food supply, over drinking water. And public health came in and said, we can reduce death just by making sure that we are um, inspecting food before people buy it, um, that we are inspecting slaughterhouses, that we are making sure that our water supply is clean and without disease. So public health has saved millions and millions of lives in our country. And, and I think people don't understand or don't realize that or don't put those two things together. I mean, then through the years, the fact that public health has has um, noticed that, boy, we could really reduce the amount of people dying in car accidents if we just required seatbelts. And look at what a tremendous lifesaver that was. And then going on and saying, boy, little kids are, are unnecessarily dying in car accidents if they were just buckled in a, in a seat that fit the size of their body. 
So there are all of these accomplishments that can be attributed to public health. And I think, again, right now, um, the, because of the world that we're in right now with the pandemic, I think people are only equating public health with wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And that is unfortunate that they look at that as, as a type of government control that they don't want when they don't realize that the interventions that have occurred through the last over 100 years are really responsible for them even being alive right now. So I can't, you know, we're so lucky that we have had such a strong public health infrastructure and direction in our country because I have no doubts that that's really shaped us and, and really made America um, what it is, um, where if we didn't have that input um, and oversight from the government, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be anywhere close to what we're experiencing right now. I really appreciate Becky's perspective. As a many-year board member and a nearly lifelong rural resident, she has a really good understanding of the work and challenges of public health in her community. We're going to zoom in now to two women who are employed by local public health. We're going to start with Tammy McKeever. Tammy is in charge of environmental health in Clay County in Northwest Iowa. When I started here, Clay County did not have an environmental health department. There was nothing. And so I really started this program from the ground and um, am very proud of what it's become and um, how it's impacted the community and the county. Uh, we do, you know, every environmental health department in, in the state of Iowa and probably the United States and the, in the world is a little bit different. Um, so we uh, started with core programs of septics and wells and uh, grant counties. And then it's kind of grown since then. We do uh, radon, um, indoor air quality, lead, lead poison children, um, nuisances, um, you know, just over the years, the program has really grown and uh, we've become a valuable resource to the, the citizens of Clay County when it comes to um, their, their health and, and how the environment impacts them. Environmental health and public health are separate departments in Clay County. Our public health department is contracted to Spencer Hospital. So, um, and that was done um, you know, 30 plus years ago. Um, it was then determined, like I said, we did not have an environmental health division of public health up until I started. And um, the public health nurses and administrator were not equipped to deal with environmental health issues. And so they um, basically requested that the Board of Supervisors hire someone. In hiring someone, they um, also wanted to find a zoning administrator. So when I started, I was the environmental health and zoning administrator. And so it remained with the county and public health is with the hospital. Um, since that time, I am now the safety director, the um, floodplain manager, the EMS coordinator. Um, so, you know, it has, when you're in a rural community, sometimes you end up um, getting tasked with things that you were never prepared to be tasked with, but, um, you know, I was always up for the challenge and they gave me an assistant. So we are able to um, do, a, do a very good job with all of those programs. 
Tammy is the first environmental health employee for her county. She shared what she was doing before that and how she became interested in environmental health. I was working for Roll Water and um, was in contact with the Buena Vista County environmental health person. And I just found it so intriguing. I, I just thought that's what I want to do. Um, and so uh, I contacted the board of supervisors and um, they had been receiving requests from public health and the timing was good. So they um, ended up uh, advertising the position. I will get calls about garbage, um, sanitation, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm environmental health. You know, there was, there was that, you know, years ago, actually when I was hired, I was, I was hired as a sanitarian. And so I always found it interesting that I would get calls about garbage and I would get calls about mental health. So I don't know if they got that confused with sanitarium or, (laughs) so there was, there's been, um, you know, lots of things that have surprised me. But um, what surprises other people when I tell them what I do for my environmental health position, um, you know, some people who've never lived outside of the city limits and have always had uh, sanitary sewer might be surprised to hear that I inspect septic systems or might be surprised to hear that um, I do um, you know, inspect septic pumpers. And uh, I think there's, you know, over the course of the years been a lot of surprised people of that, that is um, something that I do. And, um, and sometimes they can even make fun of, um, but (laughs) there's all sorts of fun little quotes associated with septic systems. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, I, Honestly, I think that's probably the thing that probably surprises people the most, um, that the first time they meet me or um, hear what I do, that, that, you know, that I inspect septic systems. I think that surprises them. You know, I think that the, the expectation, and it's a, definitely a stereotype, but the expectation is that that would be a man, you know, that, that it wouldn't be a woman who's dressed in office clothing, you know, I mean, um, so I wear, you know, business attire to work every day. And, um, you know, when I, when I go out and inspect, I'm, I'm not, you know, getting sewage on me, (laughs) typically, occasionally, but not typically. Um, You know, the biggest challenge is if I got to step over a fence or some, a barbed wire fence or something, and I I have done that and I've caught my pants before, but, but um, I think that's what the surprise is, is that I'm, you know, that there's this expectation that if you're inspecting something um, that is a construction um, that deals with septage that that would be a a woman you know and and 20 years ago I was a younger woman you know so um (laughs) so I think there was some surprise from contractors surprise from you know people who just meet you or um but over the past 20 years more and more women have gone into this field so um so when we talk about public health and environmental health the uh the the public health side you know as far as nursing um 
goes, you see a lot of women. Um, years ago, the sanitarian side, as they called it, we call it environmental health now, was a lot of men. And so I think, you know, that is a surprise. Not so much now uh, as it was. There's just, a, there's a lot of women in, in environmental health and, and doing, you know, septic system inspections and septic pumper inspections and lead investigations and nuisance investigations. And, um, but I think when I, when I started in my career, that was definitely a surprise that it was a woman doing it. Everything has become more technology-based for sure. Um, you know, so I have been here, like I said, 21 years in December. And um, when I started, everything was pretty much um, paper and mail. And um, and now that pretty much is non-existent. Everything is web-based and online. And um, and it's it, and it's a good thing. Um, as we all know, anytime you're dealing with computers, um, you, you know, if they go down, it be, can become challenging to even do your job. Um, the other thing that has changed is, you know, as I stated before, when I started, we were very basic in our programs. Um, you know, we were doing some septics and, and over the years, things have grown to, um, when I started, there was no such thing as septic pumper inspections. Um, that was something that didn't happen. Um, but, you know, as we learn more and progress, um, that was determined by the state legislator that le legislators that that was a, a needed service, that inspections needed to be performed on septic pumpers. Um, we didn't have time of transfer inspections. Um, so, you know, throughout the years, it was determined that, you know, this is an opportunity for um, us to be able to make sure that people have systems that are working, um, you know, and so the, so the programs have all grown, um, and matured and there's been new ones added and the work has become, um, more involved and, uh, the expectations of the public are higher and, uh, you know, we just continue to, try to make it better every day, do the best you can every day, but make it better every day. And um, I feel like we have. Um, it's, you know, the public's more educated than they were. Um, they have access to information online and, you know, try to challenge rules and regulations and and you have to be very well versed and able to make them understand why we do things. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important things about my job is uh, when you're in, you know, doing what I do, um, making people understand why they have to do something is the greatest tool that you can use. Um, if they understand why, then, um, you know, people are more willing to participate and um, do things in a, in a joyful manner. Um, and so th that is just a very powerful to make them knowledgeable about environmental health and the importance of why we're doing things. Tammy says that over time, she thinks more people have seen the connection between environmental health and healthy communities. She goes on to talk about what it's like to work with county government and county elected officials. So one of the challenges of um, a county public health department or environmental health department is that um, 
you know, we have a board of health that regulates, um, that is in charge of environmental health. Um, but the purse strings are the board of supervisors. And so the, the challenges are that you have these bosses who are um, elected and these bosses who are appointed and they change and their agendas are different and their philosophies are different. Um, and so as in, an environmental health practitioner, you're constantly dealing with the political arena, wh whether you want to or not. And so the most important part is that they understand the importance of your programs and what it does for the community and for the citizens of that county. Um, without that, environmental health and public health can be pushed to the side. There is no doubt about it. Um, I think with the pandemic that we're in, um, it has really brought forward the importance of public health. I would like to say that I have been very fortunate that um, I have been supported by my board of health. Um, you know, we had a board of health chair that um, has, was the chair for 30 some years. She recently retired, but there was not one um, one board of health meeting that she didn't tell me how much she appreciate, appreciated everything that I have done. And um, if there was something in the newspaper, she would cut it out and give it to me. And so very, very um, positive um, reinforcement for me that um, I was on the right track and doing the right things. Um, and like I said, you know, the board of supervisors who are the purse strings, I mean, they get, to, they decide, you know, your bottom line, you know, what your budget is going to be. And um, I've, I've, there, there has been rocky times, but um, in general, uh, very supportive, um, very common sense people, um, and, you know, understand the importance of public health and environmental health and how that, uh, you know, affects each other. And um, so I, I've been, I have been lucky. And, and I think that um, I have heard stories from other counties. I've heard, um, I've actually heard horror stories from other counties. And I've always feel, have felt very blessed and very lucky that, um, that I was in the county that I was in. We have a medical director on our board of health that is the mo one of the most passionate people I've ever met in my life, and um, and he's hard to keep up with. And so, um, so yeah, I've just been really, really blessed with people that have been supportive. As Tammy mentioned, she's been a department of one for most of her career, which can feel a bit lonely. I did create the Northwest Iowa. Um, environmental health region. And so um, we meet on a monthly basis um, and talk about environmental health issues. So the public health nurses have a regional coordinator and that regional coordinator brings them together on a monthly basis and basically gives them updates for a environmental health regional organization. So um, it mirrored what the public health administrators were doing where they um, would meet on a monthly basis for their region and um, they would talk about um, emerging issues and um, uh, you know things they didn't understand. What we recognized or what I recognized early on in my career is that um, 
you know, we deal with the DNR, the Iowa Department of Public Health. Um, I mean, there's all these agencies that have these committees and I'm a one person office. And how do I stay involved and how do I um, um, get all the resources and information that I need when I am a one person office? And so we um, created this region we meet on a monthly basis. We try and to encourage each person to be on a board, whether it be through the Iowa Environmental Health Association or if, if the DNR has a committee they want somebody on or the Iowa On-Site Wastewater Assistance um, or the Iowa um, On-Site Wastewater Association, um, the Iowa Water Well Association. So we try to have someone sit on those boards and then we come together once a month and we share the information. And it was our way of, you know, being able to stay up to date on what, what's happening um, and not have to be gone all the time. <laughs> um, so I, I guess that I'm very proud of. Um, I, when I've had other um, people start in other counties, they said it's one of the most valuable things that they have. Um, we're able to reach out and help each other. And, and so um, I guess that was kind of my brainchild and, and glad that we're doing it and, and that we started it 20 some years ago. Tammy shares what's different about doing her work in a rural area and how she's overcome some of the challenges. Well, I think what is unique is that um, in an urban area, there's usually an entire department. <laughs> um, and so um, you may have, um, for example, I'll use COVID. Um, if, you know, if I need to be quarantined, um, it's, it's going to be very challenging um, because there, we're now a two-person office doing five different jobs. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to the days when it was just myself and environmental health, um, you know, even taking a vacation day was challenging because, and unique because I had no one to, to, um, fill in. Um, so, uh, one of the things that, um, we have done in our region and it, that is probably unique is, um, we have created a 28 uh, D agreement with our entire region that um, if I'm suddenly ill or um, I have a vacation time that I am able to go into another county and work. Um, I don't know if that's something that would ever be done in an urban area um, and maybe not necessary in an urban area, but for us in the rural area, um, you know, the contractors uh, can't quit working because I'm, you know, sick for five days. Um, so who's going to do those inspections? Um, they, they can't put the work off. Um, does it just not get done? I, you know, there's lots of challenging questions. Um, and we were able to, in our rural area, come up with this and, and it's worked fabulous. Um, so for example, if someone's on vacation, they let me know that they're on vacation. Um, they try to arrange so that I'm doing as little as possible in their county, um, trying to get as much done as they can before they leave. Um, but if you have a contractor who needs to install a septic system and needs an inspection, then I can go over to um, 17 other counties and, and do their inspection. And uh, so we provide that service to each other. So I think that's probably unique to rural versus an urban where you have a department. But basically what what happened is, um, 
You know, I, I met with the DNR when I first started, I met with the DNR, I met with the Iowa Department of Public Health and, and it just felt like, oh my gosh, um, you know, there's this association that I should be a part of, and there's this, this other association I should be a part of, and this other association I should be a part of. And, and I'm like, well, how do I keep up to date on all this? And then um, I attended a training and I found um, myself talking to another individual and um, we just kind of are like, you know, maybe we should try to get together once a month and, and, and kind of just go over some of this stuff. And that's what ended up happening is we, um, we had the first me meeting in Clay County. I kind of took over as the, the president and have been the entire time. Um, I, there's not really a president. We don't elect anybody. It's just a leader. And I do the agendas every month. And, um, and uh, you know, we haven't been doing it because of COVID. Uh, we did some virtual and, um, you know, we skipped some months, for example, April and October, because that's when our conferences are. Um, but for the most part, we meet every month and we go to different, a different county every month. And so we've got to, um, you know, sometimes we'll do um, hands-on things where maybe we haven't seen a new technology and that person will set up a training for us and we'll all go there and, and uh, you know, see what that is. Or we might do a, even a, a, a webinar altogether, um, swimming pool or tan tattoo or something. And that way, if we have questions afterwards, we can kind of talk about it and how we interpreted it. We, um, we share information about contractors who say, well, you, you know, this County doesn't, you know, do that. And we can say, well, I know that person in that County and I know they do because I talk to them on a monthly basis. And, um, we last year met with the public health administrators in a, large meeting um, and just kind of discussed, um, you know, issues that, um, you know, things that different public health and environmental health departments are working on. One of the things that came up at our, at that meeting was um, I always send in um, bat exposures. So if, if someone's been exposed to a bat um, and they don't, aren't sure if they've been bitten, I have always, since I started, sent them in um, to be tested for rabies. And there was probably half the departments that didn't even know that they could do that. And so that was one of those things that it was like, well, this was very informational. You know, now we know that if we get a back call, um, we can, you know, send it to the lab to be tested for rabies. And so there, I mean, it's, it's really, um, really a positive. Um, we build each other up. We, it's very, non-judgmental like we are willing to admit if we've done something you know wrong as far as oh, I didn't even think of that or or what would you do in this case or you know can you send me that letter that you sent and and so it's very um we got a really good support group and it was I guess I'm I'm proud that I was the founder of that I love this story of camaraderie and support Working in rural areas on a team of one or two can be so isolating. What a great way to get support from others in the same position. Our final guest today is Sharon Miller. Sharon leads the health department in Madison County. Have you seen Bridges of Madison County? Yep, it's that Madison County. She'll give us some context about what her community is like, but I really want to underscore that she is near Des Moines, the most populous city in Iowa and is dealing with some incredibly challenging rural situations. 
Madison County has roughly a little under 16,000 uh, folks throughout the county. Um, we have small towns um, that are less than 100 and we have larger towns. So we definitely are very rural. I have been the public health administrator for um, about two and a half years. I currently have eight staff. Um, I have an office manager, an environmental health officer. I have uh, one part-time RN. I have two PRN RNs and I have three home health aides. So we are a very small uh, health department. You know, it's nice to work in a, a rural community because you do have those key connections and everybody knows everybody. And it's very warm and welcoming. When I started, it was just like being embraced into a family as a new member. Um, so that's nice. One of the challenges is we don't obviously have some of the capacity that some of the larger health departments have, such as Polk and Dallas. We don't have the staff capacity. We don't have the financial capacity. Um, you know, and we need to do um, good work with the little amount of funding and staff that we have. Sharon shares some of the benefits as well as the challenges of being a small rural health department. Sometimes um, we want to be a bigger county because we want to have some of those bigger pieces of pie like Polk and Dallas do. Um, but we really like the autonomy of being rural. We don't want to be swallowed up by the bigger counties. We want to make sure that we stay small, um, especially during COVID. It's been, you know, kind of a blessing that we're that close to um, Des Moines, especially when it comes to before they started shutting down the test Iowa sites. Um, early on, it was easy because we could get an appointment. Folks would drive a half an hour, not think twice about going into Polk County to get a test Iowa site um, test because early on, especially early on when SHL, you know, kept the parameters of who qualifies for testing so tight, um, we didn't have a lot of folks at the beginning of the pandemic fall within the strict guidelines of needing a test. And so having that, that quick ass access to Polk County for Test Iowa was truly a blessing. Um, and I shouldn't say just Polk County because obviously there were some in Dallas County. Um, you know, it's, it's nice in regards to folks that can access those larger counties. The challenge is for those folks that can't access those larger counties. We don't have public transportation. We don't have a busing. We have a lot of food insecurity in our county. We don't have big grocery stores like the Hy-Vees and the Fairways throughout all the county. Maybe in a couple of the bigger towns we do, but we have mom and pop grocery stores. We've got mom and pop pharmacies. Um, we've got the Casey's and the Come and Goes, and those are the places that have to provide groceries. And if you think about that, where are our fruits and vegetables? And how can we afford sustainable food source when we're going to run to the Casey's to grab a loaf of bread? I'm not getting healthy meals. I'm, you know, my kids are getting used to eating the junk food. And so having that obesity and diabetic issues, we have them. They, we have a lot of folks in our county that classify, that qualify as obese and a lot of folks that have diabetes. And it's just, and it's perpetuates when, and it was really 
Um, obviously, because of COVID, another thing, we knew we had food insecurity. We knew we had pockets of it, but we didn't know the extent of that food insecurity until COVID came and kind of locked us all down. And then all of a sudden, we've got families that luckily all the schools in our county offered, you know, families to go and get meals there for that stopgap measure, but it doesn't and it hasn't solved that problem. And then, you know, another shining, blaring spotlight is our mental health. We're in rural Iowa. We don't have the mental health services that we need. You know, if you want to have mental health services, you're going to have to go to some of those larger counties. We, we don't have the capacity. Um, and it's not fair. Um, when I, we don't have public transportation, how is my family going to get there? Um, they're not getting reimbursed, you know. Um, they're in crisis situations. They can use the phone, but we also can't do Zoom. And why can't we do Zoom? Because not every single town in my rural county has access to internet. So how can I have a telehealth visit if I don't have the capability to actually have telehealth? Which also is, is a struggle for our kids to stay connected with school. How can we properly engage these kids to help them with normal growth and development when they can't do it on a screen? And especially in March and April and May, when we shut the schools down, these kids were very disconnected because they didn't have the capability to sit in front of a screen. That just wasn't going to happen at some of these towns because sometimes I get a little too passionate about some of the stuff and... Um, but this is this is rural Iowa. I mean, these are the things that we see on a consistent basis. And then when you have folks that say we need to invest, we need to invest. Well, do it. Figure out a way to invest the dollars to actually help rural Iowa. Don't just do a blanket statement and say we understand. How do you understand if you don't actually see it and don't pick and choose who you want to talk to? You know, we you, if you want to have an open forum and a community meeting, that's great. But guess who comes to those open forums and those community meetings? The people that have access to transportation and the means to be able to financially afford to go to those meetings. And not everybody in the community can. And so you're missing a large portion of people that need to have their voices heard. Sharon talks about how COVID-19 has threatened her community. Well, I think like COVID, the, the pandemic itself is a threat to, to our community. We don't have the access to testing that we need. Um, we, I can't, I don't have the, the financial capabilities to give someone money to go get testing. There is no taxis, there are no Ubers, there is no public transportation. So how, when these poor individuals are ill, how are they going to be able to access the care to get tested to know? And then it goes back to they can't do a telehealth because they don't have Internet in these small towns. So by the time they do and are able to access care, they are sick, whether they're sick with COVID or they're sick with their diabetes is out of control, or they've had stroke-like symptoms for a handful of days, but they're just not ignoring them. They're trying to figure out a way, but they also can't afford 
a five, six, $700 ambulance visit to either the one hospital that we hear in, have here in Madison County or any of the surrounding county hospitals. And that's also, I mean, it's, it's, we're, it's a blessing that although we are in rural county, we do have a hospital here in Madison County, but it's in Winterset, which is the largest town here in Madison County, but it's also not a 10 minute drive from all the other points in Madison County. It might be a half an hour, 45 minute drive from the farthest point south of our county. And so they may have to actually access care in a different county. And does the other counties and does Madison County have all the services that this individual needs? So this individual may need to get a referral and have to go to the larger county, Polk and Dallas, to access care, or even to Iowa City, or we have veterans here. And so they have to go to Des Moines for their care at the VA. And so it's all it all just snowballs into a great big, and then you have individuals that are feeling overwhelmed because they don't know how to access the system. They're not health literate. We know that healthcare has its own vernaculum. We all do, everybody that works in different pockets. So when you're trying to explain to mom or grandma, we talk at a higher level than what they can comprehend themselves. And so we also need to remember that when, when we are providers, we need to remember how to talk to individuals in language that is easily comprehensible, not just to the patient, but to the patient's family, which is a huge disconnect right now, because if the only person that can access care is the patient because of COVID, how is the patient going to articulate to its family members the help and the support that the family needs to give to this individual to actually make sure that he or she is taking care of its diabetes or whatever it is. They can't because they don't necessarily understand everything that has been said to them in that small amount of 15 minutes. Sharon has so many stories highlighting these challenges. Pre-COVID that came in, they were an older family, they were accessing services. They had to go to Des Moines to get the services. Um, chronic health, cancer, blah, 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 needed some assistance with the medical cannabis card. And the provider in Des Moines said, go to public health and they'll help you. Well, no, you don't come to local public health. You go to the Iowa Department of Public Health and everything that you need to fill out is online. These individuals were past 50. They did not have access to a computer. They didn't know what a mouse was. And what they heard was go to public health. So these poor individuals came into our office. This, this lady was older, as was her husband. They've been married for 50 plus years, are still happily married. And the, the wife was in tears because no one could help her. So we take time, which is what we're blessed with in rural Iowa. We got to take time. I spent an hour and a half out of my day last June to help this couple understand how to fill out the forms. I downloaded stuff from my computer, printed things off, 
told them exactly where to go, what to send, what we needed to copy, everything. They had to go back to Des Moines to get a signature. Then they came back here with all these pieces of paper signed, did not know what to do next. I put everything in there. They wrote the checks. They got everything done. Then they got a notice that said that they had to go to the Department of Transportation to get this card. They couldn't do it at the Department of Transportation here in Madison County. Again, they had to go back into Polk County to get this done. All the amount of hurdles for this one small process that should have been an easy process was not an easy process. And luckily it all worked out. It was great. They had to get a renewal this year. So they came in when COVID numbers were low. Our office has been open during COVID because we are public health. They came in, they got this notice from the state. They got a renew, what can we do? The blessing of all of that is that they made the connection to local public health so that they knew they could trust local public health and we would help them. The challenge was the amount of hurdles that it took this poor couple to get this card was ridiculous. How could it have been made easier? It could have been made easier by the provider who knew just by looking at these individuals that technology was not their friend. It could have been made easier by the provider and or the nursing staff by saying, Mrs. Miller, could we print these forms out for you? Could we help you? You're already in the clinic. Why could they have not done it? Well, because we only had 15 minutes, we're running late. The blessing of being in rural Iowa is we have those human connections that we can spend a little extra time. But the challenge is when you have insurance and other people's driving those buses, we can't make those connections. And oftentimes people that can't navigate the complicated healthcare system get lost in it. And therefore they don't access healthcare because they feel like they're just a number. They feel lost in the system. They have no control and they're being told what to do when we don't ask them what they need us to do for them. And we're talking, and I'm talking about people that are blessed that had insurance. I'm not talking about these, these individuals and we have, a, we have a large number of folks that are underinsured or uninsured. And so then, you know, yeah, I've been having chest pains for five days, but I can't do anything about it because I'm either gonna have to pay for gas, groceries or a hospital visit and I'm gonna to continue to pay for gas and groceries so I can continue to work and feed my children. And I'm gonna not pay attention to my own health. And so by the time I do pay attention to my own health, we've got a ton of health issues instead of doing that preventative health care, which we know is so important. But when you can't afford it, you don't do it, which is so hard, especially right now during COVID. Families can't afford to be quarantined for 14 days, especially if they're not considered essential because somebody needs to pay the rent. They got to pay the mortgage. They've got to feed these kids. And so, and if the only hot meal 
that these kids are getting on a regular basis is at the school, then it really is compounding the issues when we have to have these kids stay out of school because they are a close contact to a household positive. And it's, I don't have any magic wand to fix all of this, but it's just really, really hard. And it's no wonder the communities are tired. Everyone is COVID weary. Local public health is beyond COVID weary. We we are overwhelmed. We have cases coming through at an astronomical rate right now. I mean, we can't even do our own proper contact tracing because we have so many cases coming in. What do you do? I, I don't know. And then people are weary and they don't want to tell you the truth because they themselves don't want to be put in quarantine. So when you ask them, you know, have you traveled anywhere? No. Have you been with anybody? No. Have you been six feet for 15 consecutive minutes? No. Even though we know that they have been, but we have to rely on their honesty. Um, and then it just perpetuates the numbers of positivity that we are getting. And now we have the challenge of it's becoming winter. We're closing these sites down. Not everybody has access to a stroke detection. There's no stroke detection place here in Madison County. You'd have to drive to Des Moines. You know, the test Iowa sites have all been closed with the exception of one. That's, you know, on the north side of Polk County. So that's going to be a 45-minute drive from Winterset. It's going to be an hour drive from the southern part. So they're going to have to go to a different county and hope that they can get tested there. And we don't have the luxury of having some of those Binext cards or those Abbott quick tests here in our county because they're expensive and our local providers can't afford to spend that much money on these apparatuses. A quick reminder, we recorded these interviews in the fall of 2020, which was before vaccination started, and numbers of COVID-19 cases were rising every week. Well, we are very tired. I will speak for a lot of public health administrators. We are tired. Our staff is tired. Our staff is overwhelmed. Our public health administrators have not had days off for months, um, even weeks. Uh, we're all salaried. You know, we're not getting bonuses. We're not getting overtime. You know, we're eating the hours. We can't not answer the phone. We don't know if that's, you know, a positive or if it's not a positive. We got to answer the phone. Um, folks look to us at local public health for all the answers. We don't have all the answers. You know, we get the guidance from IDPH and the Department of Ed, um, just like the general public. And then when they talk to you, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're angry because they're positive, they're frustrated because they're positive, they're angry, they're in quarantine, they're frustrated, they're in quarantine. You know, they're angry because they don't think local public health is doing enough. Why, ha why haven't we flattened the curve already? You know, you've been telling me since March to wear a face covering, wash my hands. I've been doing that. Doesn't seem to make a difference. Our numbers are spiking throughout all of Iowa. Um, we went from very few numbers in March. Um, now we are at 17.5% positivity um, as of today. Um, so, you know, we had 12 new cases overnight. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just like, you know, I always tell my staff, it's like pulling back the onion. At what point are we going to get to the core of the onion?
You know, the staff are overworked. Um, they're tired. We got to take care of their mental health. They have families. Um, they may have kids. They may have their own issues within, you know, their own families. Um, and so folks sometimes forget to practice patience and grace. And they're just concerned about their situation. And they don't think about maybe Sharon might have a situation at her household. How is her health? How many days has she worked? You know, has Sharon been in quarantine? Has she been positive? You know, why is Sharon so short with me? Why does she have to ask me all these questions? I have to ask you all these questions because I have to do my due diligence to protect the other residents of Madison County. And I need you to do your due diligence to be open and honest with me and tell me what you can about your case. So, you know, people are tired and they're weary and, and I'm not sure it's going to get any better, especially as we are coming into the, the holidays. Folks want to see their parents, their grandparents, their new baby, um, new cousin, whatever. And we can't have folks do some of those activities. Will they do them? Yep, they will. Will it affect our numbers? Yep, it will. Was it worth it? I, I don't know if it will be or not. Um, everybody will have to make that own decision. And it's just, it's, it's a very frustrating situation in public health right now. Um, you know, it's challenging because um, I appreciate that folks are trying their hardest to demonstrate that face coverings work, but the more we demonstrate face covering works, the more it puts doubt in the minds of individuals. Why am I working so hard to show you the data that says that face covering work? Why can't we just say face coverings work? Because we've instilled now the seed of doubt about, hmm, Sharon's working really hard to point out that face coverings work. And then on the other side, it's a whole behavioral change. And that's what public health works with, is we work with behavioral change. And if we can't give folks the tools to change their behavior, then this is not going to go anywhere. Um, I like to tell individuals that push back to me in regards to face coverings, I like to say, well, let's think about it in a different format. It's a piece of cloth. I put on a piece of cloth every single time I get into my car. I strap it across my shoulder, I buckle in. It's called a seatbelt. Now, will it protect me from getting in a crash? Nope. But it may save my life if I get into a wreck, um, or it may decrease my, my seriousness of my injuries, but that piece of cloth protects me. Just like the piece of cloth I need to wear over my face and my nose. And so I think if we can change the message and the vernaculum to resonate with the public and make it as simple as those comparison, maybe we'll see some of that behavioral change. But right now, folks are tired and there, there's lots of data that they can find that says face coverings don't work, even though we know they do work. And then the other thing that's really good in local public health when you're in rural um, counties is you also get to transform the life 
of a young person, they can look up to you and say, wow, I want to be like the local pharmacist or the local butcher or the local mailman or law enforcement. They already have a built-in role model instead of having to try and think bigger, you know, because the small folks, we make an impact. We just don't know we make an impact, whether it's me going into the schools and talk about talking about something that I'm passionate about. And then you get one person in that class excited. And maybe that one person is the next person that's going to go into public health and change the world. We don't know. But that's also the benefits of working in a, in a rural community because we get to make those connections. And it, there's not such a disconnect you know, before COVID, we could put your arms around you and give you a big hug and say, Lori, I can see that you're upset. What can I do to help you? Now we just have to trust that individuals can find their voice to ask for help. And that's not always easy, especially right now. I asked Sharon one of my favorite questions. Is rurality a determinant of health? Well, I think it is a social determinant of health. Um, it can be a positive social determinant of health because I can have that connection with my local provider. They will see me at the grocery store. They can come up and ask me, how am I doing? Is this, you know, is my med working? Um, so that's good. Um, it, it also makes that connection stronger in regards to the social determinants of health, but it it's also a barrier because if I live in one of those smaller towns, less than a hundred, and we've got towns like that here in Madison County, I don't have the access that I need to be able to be health literate, to able to access fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, I don't have public transportation. Um, so um, it's, it's a mixed bag living in, in rural Iowa. It's also, um, we have pockets of poverty, which I haven't even talked about. Not everybody in the county um, has the luxury of having um, more money than, than they need. Um, we have many individuals that work paycheck to paycheck, and we have many individuals that are working two and three jobs. And we have families that are multi-generational families because they need to be multi-generational to pay the, to make the ends meet. We also have an Amish population here in Madison County. And so they take care of themselves. And so um, also working with them um, brings um, other challenges in regards to how do we message um, the importance of vaccines when they, we know that they typically don't vaccinate their children. How can we talk to them um, in a respectful manner um, and meet them halfway so that we can hopefully protect those young children um, against something as serious as a measles outbreak or um, something like that. So when we think about that, we also have to think about how can we um, talk to them in a respectful manner, but also what are they really concerned about and what health issues do they have and how can we build that bridge between what they what we think that they need and what they think that they need 
because oftentimes those are two completely different answers. That is such an important point. Ideally, public health meets people where they are, and through tools like the Community Health Needs Assessments, we know we're working in tandem with community members to improve health. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. On the opposite side of that coin is understanding what the public thinks of public health. I asked Sharon what she wishes people understand about the work of public health. I think that I wish folks would understand the breadth of which public health really is. So it's not just, it's not just given shots. I mean, we do a lot of good work in public health. Um, I haven't even talked about our environmental health program. I mean, we worry about access to clean water. We worry about clean water. We worry about radon. Um, you know, we want to make sure your septic is working right. Um, you know, dog bites. So there's a whole lot of stuff that we do in public health. Um, one that folks don't know we do. So I guess that's good if they don't know that we do it, we're doing it well. Or um, it's not good because they don't know of all the services that we can provide. And then the other thing is I don't think folks actually know what public health is. Because those are two big words. When you think about the public, you think about, I don't know what. And then when you think about health, what do you think about? Do you think about your doctor? Do you think about your overall health? So when you put those two words together, that seems like a lot of stuff that people can't unpackage. So how do you, as students, unpackage that public health? How can we message and sell ourselves better in public health? You know, everybody that I know that works in public health has a huge heart. Um, they're kind, they're empathetic, they want to make a difference. But if the community doesn't know the impact of public health on their community, then how can we truly make that impact? And then the other thing is that with public health, there is not an abundance of resources for us. We are just like any other business where we struggle for financial security and resources. The grants are harder to write. Um, they're more competitive. Um, public health, for the most part, especially in a lot of rural communities, we're not a money-making program. And so when the Board of Supervisors um, are looking at programs to cut, it's not uncommon that public health and some of their programs is the first thing on the chopping block because we're not a sustainable program. And so how can we get folks to think about public health not balancing the checkbook in that way, but thinking about we make a huge difference in the overall health and well-being of the community, and that's priceless. That's not trying to balance the checkbook. That is trying to make you and your family continue to be a you know, productive member of your community. We want our kids to grow and thrive. We want grandma and grandpa to grow and thrive. We wanna keep them at home and healthy for as long as we possibly can. 
But if we have to worry about X's and O, and if I spend $5 here, I need to generate $10, then we lose the passion and the mission of public health. I think we need to think about how we can frame in an advocacy perspective, how we can frame public health so that we are not um, vilified. And right now we're being vilified. Um, and I personally worry about young people that are looking at what's currently happening within public health and are they going to have the conviction to go into public health? Because right now it's not a fun place to be in. It's a very shark infested water and you never know when you stick your toe in that water if it's going to get bit or not. And, and will we continue to have young people with your talents um, to share um, in the future? And will we have that, that amount of talent and expertise in the future? I, I don't know. Um, I know the cohort of Iowa State kids that I'm working with now, they're smart, they're bright, but what is that going to do when you think about your major in five, four, five years? Are we going to see um, new blood? And then the other thing is I very much worry about the individuals that are currently working in public health because they're tired. Um, we're not exactly young. Some of us aren't exactly young. And we are getting ready to put that surrender flag up. And if they leave and we have a mass exodus of the, of the workforce, who's going to replace it? And what does that look like if it is replaced? Is it going to be at the quality that we want it to be? Or will we have counties say, well, we can just do one component of public health and not that whole menu of public health that we do, because that's all we can afford. Or will public health be swallowed up within another department or with a hospital, and then we lose the identity of public health? I will tell you that I have a freshman at Iowa State, and um, she went in as an open major, and she has declared her major, and she has declared her major as public health. And I have tried very hard to bite my tongue and tell her not to get into public health because this poor girl will have her soul crushed. But she very much sees what her mom is doing and the impact of some of the things that we are doing in public health. And she wants to be part of that. So I'm hoping that enthusiasm and that passion, whether it's a political drive or an advocacy drive or just an overall drive to um, make a difference and have your empathy and kindness show up. I'm hoping that that may continue to drive the workforce, but I don't know. Not everyone realizes the impact of public health upon them personally. You have, you know, you have a working septic system. Congratulations. That's because when it was being, you know, permitted and then when folks were looking at it as your house was being built, we made sure that it was safe and that it would hold what it needs to hold. You know, when your child gets vaccinated and you get grumpy with me because you want to send your kid to daycare, but you, you need to have that, that, you know, other MMR shot before you send your kid into daycare. That's all public health. And that's all trying to help you be the best person that you can be. Thank you for joining us today. 
I'm very grateful to Becky, Tammy, and Sharon for sharing their experiences with us today and for all the work they and their public health colleagues across the country do to protect our health every day, whether we're in a pandemic or not. We have one more episode in this rural health series. Join us next week as members of the planning committee for the series reflect on what we've heard and learned over the past nine episodes. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.